Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, did you ever see a little film by the name of Fantastic Voyage? I've not seen it in its entirety, but I've seen clips, and it is a pretty wonderful, funny movie. Yeah, this was uh, 1966, and it's a... uh, the plot involves like a diplomat is nearly assassinated, and so in order to save him, the government is going to go to ridiculous sci-fi extremes. Right, so, right. He's got a blood clot in his brain. Right. right? So the, the natural thing to do is let's build a special submarine. Mm-hmm. Then let's use uh, mysterious technology to actually shrink the submarine down mm-hmm. so small that it can that it can swim around inside the bloodstream, inside the human body, and actually address this problem on a micro scale. And we're also shrinking down an entire crew to man it, right. which includes, uh, oh, uh, Donald Pleasance, the young Dra- James Brolin, and, uh, and of course... Uh, Raquel Welch. Raquel Welch, yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, and it is just, it's so funny to watch because they're kind of trying to swim through the body. Yeah. And they, <laughs> I mean, it's just... It's very uh, low-tech, obviously. Yeah, and it's time. incredibly well-lit inside the human body in that film, too, despite yes. the fact that there's no light inside there. It's uh, it's like the whole the old saying about uh, outside of a dog. Uh, what is the saying? Outside of a dog, uh, a book is a man be- man's best friend, but inside of a dog, it's too dark to see. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. all right, I'll go with that. So, but anyway, I, I, I digress. Uh, Fantastic Voyage, great film. Isaac Asimov wrote the screenplay uh, after being assured that he could fix the plot holes and sort of tweak the science. And then uh, younger audiences are probably familiar with the 1987's Interspace, which was a, a Joe Dante film that starred Dennis Quaid, Martin Short, Meg Ryan, and uh, and also some older names in the the form of Kevin McCarthy and Henry Gibson. And this was this was, did you see this? I have not seen okay. this. Th- this was an amazing picture. Uh, I, I probably could not watch it today, but as a kid, it was it was fabulous because you have Dennis Quaid as a hotshot uh, like fighter jock who ends up getting miniaturized inside this little submarine, and then the submarine is injected into Martin Short's buttocks, ah. uh, and so most of the film is Martin Short like freaking out and doing freaky things because Dennis Quaid is sort of tinkering and puppeting with him uh, inside with this little submarine, and then later in the film, a second submarine is injected into Martin Short. And then, so it's like a villain in one submarine and then Dennis Quaid in the other and they duke it out in Martin Short's gut. That sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, I was kind of wondering what role Martin Short would take in this yeah. and that, that totally makes sense. I also want to note the benign violation theory here, yeah. right? When we talked about how humor works. Yeah. Here you have, he's got something that's put up his bum, right? Mm-hmm. But it's... Well, it's not put up. It's more put in. It's, okay, it's injected. in his bum. Yeah. It, but they're dudes duking it out in his bowels. Yeah. And somehow that's funny and not so much violating. There is a, and this is a mild spoiler, but there's an awesome scene where the um, where Dennis Quaid's fighting the bad guy off, and the bad guy has to jettison his suit. So he's just like in a, like a, kind of a, a, a diving suit, and he's on the outside of Dennis Quaid's submarine trying to like drill through the, the glass screen. Mm-hmm. And so Dennis Quaid like puts his suit, his submarine into dive and goes into the stomach acid. And then, uh, and so it dissolves like all the skin off of the villain. He's just his skeletons clinging to the outside of the submarine, and it's and it's awesome if you're eight. Well, and I mean, I kind of think that's what's happening in my stomach right now. Yeah, yeah. I had a really heavy breakfast. Okay. But of course, we're talking about all of this because 
this this seemed like a dream, right? When it was first uh, introduced to the to audiences, right? This idea that you could shrink technology and you could take this fantastic voyage through the body. Yeah, but as we'll discuss in this podcast, uh, the, the the technology is here. We're already making some pretty fantastic voyages, and as we look uh, look into the future, um, the, the technology is just going to get that much more amazing. Yeah. So. But before we talk about shrinking down Raquel Welch and putting her in, in your small intestine, we should probably talk about what we did in the past to peer into the digestive system. Right. And digestion and its many uh, problems, I mean, we've always been obsessed with this. We've always been trying yeah. to figure out why, uh, what, well, how does it work and why does it rarely seem to work? Well, hence the pooping duck, right? Right. The pooping duck. Um I was looking through a, a book of, uh, you're familiar with, with mudras, right? The whole, uh, yeah, like the, the hand, the mudras. hand s- symbols and, uh, the hand configurations in, uh, in Buddhism and Hinduism. Mm-hmm. And, uh, there are a whole lot of them, like a, an enormous number of mudras are related to, to digestion and sort of tweaking your digestion through a particular energy flow. So it, scientifically and non-scientifically, it's been a, a hot topic for a while. But uh, for the longest, we weren't actually really able to observe what's happening in there. Again, mm-hmm. A, there's no light, and uh, and B, we can't really turn ourselves inside out. or no, And we certainly can't miniaturize ourselves and go in and witness digestion firsthand. Mm-hmm. We only had, say, autopsies and, and, and sort of you know, diagnosis of symptoms to go on. But no real-time observation of right. what was going on until... The 1800s, right? When a Dr. William Beaumont, Dr. William Beaumont comes on the scene. Yeah, a pr- pretty pretty amazing dude. His uh, his family were, Brit- were British and they moved to the colonies. He was uh, at a, like 26. He was uh, enlisted as a surgeon's mate in the U.S. Army. So so he it's it's important to note uh, for what's about to come that, that he saw a lot of uh, a lot of battlefield injuries. He a was, lot of blood and guts. A lot of blood and guts. And then uh, a particular case of blood and guts came his way on June 6. 1822, the American Fur Company was in uh, Mackinac Island, a French-Canadian uh, property, right? Yeah, now part of Michigan. Yeah. And uh, there is a, a voyager by the name of Alexi St. Martin. This is a guy that paddles around in a canoe, picks up furs from uh, Native American trappers, and uh, delivers them to fur companies. So it's that kind of thing. Very sort of classic French-Canadian kind of thing. Um and what you you were saying earlier, that, that's still pretty much how things roll on Mackinac. Island. Oh yeah, yeah. Every, everything is you know pretty much horse uh, carriage driven there, and lots of good fudge, chocolate yeah. covered pretzels. Well, uh, fur trappers. <laughs> Alexi Saint Martin he ends up uh, suffering an injury though. Basically, a musket goes off by accident, blasts a hole in his abdomen. Yeah, and it's about the size of a of a man's palm, according to the the write ups. And Dr. Beaumont. Starts to treat him, right? Right. The natural thing, of course, is let's fix the fix the the ailment and close that hole mm-hmm. in your stomach, right? Because it, I mean, it's a pretty ghastly wound. Yeah, and again, he was no stranger to blood and guts. Um, and in fact, he, you know, before he even discovered the um, the extent of the wound, he had carved off a bit of um, Saint Martin's rib so Ugh. he could stuff the lung back in. Mm-hmm. And then apply a poultice, right? Right. But before doing so, he noticed that he could peer into the into his stomach, St. Martin's stomach, and actually see his breakfast there. Yeah. It was to the point, like there are descriptions in the text, that like food and drink would slosh out of this hole. Yeah. It's, it's pretty, pretty gross sounding. But as we mentioned, this is a, as a doctor views this, as an inquisitive mind looks at this hole, 
obviously he's thinking about the, the possibilities here. First and foremost, he try, he's trying to help this guy. He's trying first. to heal him. Yeah. Right. Trying to heal him. Uh, but then he, I, I think the, the gears are already working because right. first thing he does is he hires Alexion in April of 1823 as a, as if his family's live-in handyman. Chopping wood, mowing the fields, all that sort of stuff. And he waits, he waits a couple of years before, uh, until August the 1st, 1825 to actually get the experiment rolling. Right, because at this point it's become very obvi- obvious that this is a gastric fistula. It is not going to heal. Right. He's going to have this gaping hole in his stomach his and whole he, life. Yeah, and you can just imagine him during that two, like during that two year, uh, stint, like did he, did he sort of work up to it? You know, what, what, <laughs> at, at what point did he say, hey, Alexi, um, I got this idea. Would would you be cool if, say, tomorrow morning, instead of doing some yard work, you came into the office and I took some little pieces of meat and tied them to strings and I dangled them through that hole in your belly? Yeah. Do you mind if you are a human fondue pot for me? <laughs> yeah. Gastric fondue. Yeah. Can you imagine? Like that. That would be a very awkward conversation. And in fact, I think that would be a very awkward work arrangement for as yeah. long as they had. Of course, I instantly think of the classical art images of Doubting Thomas and Jesus Christ with a wound yeah. in his side and, and Thomas has to stick his finger in the, in the wound to see if it's real. And I mean, the the, uh, the comparison here is obvious. I mean, uh, Beaumont is a Doubting Thomas. He's a very inquisitive individual and he cannot help but poke around in that hole because there yeah. are answers in that hole. Well, and up until now, scientists could not figure out what digestion was about. Was it mechanical? Like, was right. it grinding up things? Because that's how did they know? Or was it chemical? Right. And here he has a specimen in front of him in, in, in the form of St. Martin. And yeah, he starts doing some things that seem uh, kind of disgusting. Yeah, but very insightful. Like, they started off uh, rather simple with, uh, for instance, the meat on the string thing. Like, get a few different pieces of meat, tie strings to them, dangle them through the hole, and then after an hour has passed, pull out one of the pieces of meat. See what 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 rate has it digested. An hour later, two hours have passed, you pull out a second piece of meat. After three hours have passed, you pull out a third, and you can compare. You know, mm-hmm. it's very... It's very scientific. He's, yeah, he's applying the scientific method to this, and he really is earnest, in earnest trying to research this. And, um, in fact, researches it for, like, another decade, not not primarily on um, St. Martin, but other patients with gastric fistulas. Right. And he comes to publish a book on the subject, uh, Experiments and Observations on the Gastric Juice and the Physiology of Digestion. And he says definitively, here's the deal. Um, this stuff in the stomach is made up of hydrochloric acid. Here's right. your answer. Yeah, and the various experiments he conducts to, to, to figure this out and to, and to further explore the particulars of the, um, of what's going on in the gut are, are pretty amazing. Like, at one point he, he removes, uh, some gastric juice, on several points he actually removes the gastric juice from, uh, Alexi's stomach. Mm-hmm. Uh, in particular, one case uh, involved taking some of the, the juice out, putting it in a glass, and then putting meat, uh, in his belly, putting meat in, in the glass of gastric juice, and then putting meat in just a glass of water. And then comparing. Mm-hmm. And in this, he was able to tell that, yes, the gastric juices are essential, but heat is also important. And the, the sample that's just sitting out on his desk doesn't have the heat to aid in digestion. He was able to study things such as exercise, how exercise affects, because, you know, you dangle some meat inside Alexi and then send him out to do some work. Uh, and I was just imagining him on a treadmill, but of course that didn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was probably chopping wood or doing, you know, attending to his other uh, duties around the property. Right. Or um, another thing that would happen is that Alexi would occasionally become irritable uh, during all this whole poking. And uh, 
and that would be measurable to determine how um, how emotion, how agitation affects our digestion. And uh, and the whole time he's he's also testing various meats to see uh, what the rate like how how does chicken stack up against beef. At one point he uh, puts twelve raw oysters directly through the uh, stomach hole. It sounds about right, right, right. And uh, and yeah, this continues for you know about a decade, and it and it really is important work uh, in our in our historical understanding of how the digestive system works. Yeah, thanks to St. Martin. Yeah. And the crazy thing, too, is that Alexis St. Martin lived to be 86 years old. That's 58 years after his accident. Mm-hmm. That alone is amazing. But along the way, he was able to make kind of a career out of this. Well, also amazing because duct tape wasn't invented yet, right? <laughs> I mean, how how is he, you know, keeping, um, you know, presumably he was changing out the poultices yeah. um, that were covering the wound. But, I mean, that is incredible. I mean, he outlived uh, Beaumont. Yeah. And at one point, he had moved away. And then he ended up moving back with his family. Like mm-hmm. Beaumont was able to let, to lure him back into these experiments. Yeah, there's no real definitive accounts there, but there, there there's um, some suggestions that the um, it was an odd relationship. And um, as <laughs> yeah. you talked about before, the family wasn't very supportive of. Hey, let's why don't you go let this guy poke around you all you know year. Yeah, and when he when Alexei finally died at the, this ripe old age, uh, his family let his body decompose in the sun for a few days before they buried him in an unmarked grave because because the, they didn't want people digging, they didn't want an autopsy performed mm-hmm. on him, they didn't want anybody poking around anymore with him. As, you know, as if to say, look, you really did enough of this while he was alive, and we would really like to mourn, uh, you know, a husband, a father, a grandfather, and not just a dude with. A hole in his stomach. He was more yeah. than that. Leave him alone already. Is yeah. I think what they were saying. Um, all right. So now we know how how it was done in the olden days. Um, right after this message, we'll talk about the amazing technology that we have today. All right, we're back. Now we're moving into a more modern understanding of, of what's going in, on inside the human body and uh, in our ability to poke around inside it. Long before Beaumont, we were, of course, interested in this. And long before Beaumont, doctors were poking around in the various holes in the human body. Uh, and you had physicians even as far back as the 10th century A.D. who were trying to develop devices that would allow them to better see the inside of the mm-hmm. human body through uh, various body orifices. And uh, through the 1800s, you actually you had several scientists attempting to construct actual endoscopic instruments. But it wasn't until uh, basically the, uh, the, the mid-1800s and then eventually uh, the early uh, 20th century that this uh, technology began to really take hold. And certainly it was the 60s and 70s before we were actually using endoscopic technology mm-hmm. to, uh, to view inside the, the, the human body. The endoscope, just think of it like a telescope, except instead of looking at the cosmos, looking outward, we're looking inward. With a camera. Right. And it pokes inside the body mm-hmm. through either one of its naturally occurring holes or a surgical incision. Right. And a lot of people are familiar with this, with these endoscopies and colonoscopies, right? Right. And the traditional way to do this is a person undergoes endoscopic ultrasound and they're sedated prior mm-hmm. to this. Um, after sedation, the doctor inserts the endoscope into the person's mouth or rectum and then observes the intestinal tract on a TV monitor and the ultrasound image on another monitor. So this is how we can sort of turn ourselves inside out. Yes. What we've been doing in the past, at least. So... The problem with this, um, I mean, it's a great technology, but the problem is that, you know, obviously the you could accidentally puncture an organ 
or some other um, accident that could occur. Uh, this doesn't happen a lot, but it could result in death. Right. Um, it's a little bit more invasive than you probably want it to be, right? Yeah, you're ultimately sticking a camera, a very narrow camera, into a hole uh, in the body. So there is the potential for, for injury to take place. Yeah, but it's incredibly useful for trying to detect colon cancers, digestive disorders, nodules, um, just any uh, number of things that you want to know more about that can only go inside the body. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it allows the doctor to, to look at things that, that they otherwise would not be able to see and would not be able to examine and, and diagnose. The technology really became advanced uh, around uh, 1986. That was uh, at the point where we uh, had a video computer chip technology that allowed uh, magnification and projection of images mm-hmm. from an endoscope. So that uh, this is for the point where it really began uh, to be uh, useful during general surgery, uh, even where you could uh, you, you could you could actually have an image of the of what's going on inside the human body projected. Uh, or displayed on the television screen during surgery. And then, of course, um, capsule endoscopes came more into vogue in the 2000s. They started to be used widely. And at that time, they were unable to propel themselves. Um, They relied more on muscle contractions to move them along. But the cool part of this is that this is really where the fantastic voyage comes into play. We're talking about a capsule, you know, the, the size of a vitamin that has the camera in it that is really far less invasive. Right. It's it's uh, if you think of the digestion system as this this highway that food has to travel, and it tends to run. Figures vary, but it's it, the digestion system from mouth to anus is somewhere between twenty two and twenty six feet in length. Okay. And if you are limited by tethers, by a pole, uh, or, or <laughs> if you your know, car was had some sort of. Uh, rope on the end of it, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like imagine you had to pump gasoline um, through a hose to your car. You mm-hmm. could only travel so far become, before it would just become, um, it just wouldn't be feasible anymore. Like diving comes to mind as you know, an example of this. If you're having to pipe air down to the diver, uh, you know, it, it just becomes more and more of a pain, and it becomes uh, it ultimately isn't feasible anymore to, to keep uh, coiling out the, the pipe. What you want is a, a diver with a tank mm-hmm. so that they're independent of the uh, of, of any tether to the surface world, and that's what's happening here. If you could put it in a capsule, mm-hmm. the individual can swallow it, and it can travel the whole course without having wires and, or lines or anything trailing down uh, one orifice or up another. And that a doctor could manipulate, right? Right, because that's the other thing too. You, we want to you know be able to manipulate uh, the capsule, and you want to be able to fit enough. Like you know, you're, you want to get a camera in there, and you're, you're going to need power in there, but you don't want to necessarily have a couple of double A's. Uh, you don't you don't want to have to have room in there for digital storage of the of the photos because this is this is going to travel through the human body. It needs to be relatively small in size. It's going to go through the poop chute, yep. and you don't want necessarily all that data to go into the toilet, right? So you right. want it to go elsewhere so that you have access to it. So let's talk a little bit more about the specs on this. Yeah. Some of these are about the size of a vitamin, uh, but some of the more experimental versions have actually gotten down as small as a... Uh, is a, is a piece of rice, which is a grain of rice, which is so just crazy. crazy to think yeah. about. And uh, they're able to um, to solve uh, some of these problems of size by actually having the individual who uh, who has swallowed the capsule wear a belt. And this belt has the technology to both uh, beam power to the capsule, mm-hmm. so that it doesn't have to have an onboard power source, and uh, it has the ability to receive images from the camera. So the camera is outputting the images to uh, a contraption on the belt. Right, and it has a magnetic field that allows the doctor to, to actually manipulate 
right. uh, the pill to go where he or she wants it to go. Yeah, and when we're talking about taking images, we're talking, uh, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of like 870,000 images. That's the that's the number that's given for the Sayaka endoscopic capsule that was uh, developed by uh, the Japanese uh, RF System Lab. This was a pretty amazing little uh, piece of technology, especially when you consider that it achieves all of these uh, these goals while only costing around a hundred dollars. Right. So it's actually a disposable camera. Mm-hmm passes through the human body, and then the patient doesn't have to dig it out of their stool at the end of it. It's just completely... Which is another yeah. advantage exactly. for most people. I would, Yeah, I would think so. Unless yeah. you want, you know, you could, I guess you could get it out of there and keep it as a souvenir, but <laughs> but if you're squeamish about that sort of thing, just, I guess, flush it. Yeah, and, and this procedure really is considered low risk. Uh, there's a chance of the capsule becoming lodged in the intestine, but that usually happens in about 1% of the cases mm-hmm. that happens. Uh, they can remove it with a scope or through surgery. Right. The next stage in the development of this fantastic voyage, though, is the idea of a self-propelled endoscopic camera. Okay. So it's it's not having to depend on either muscle contractions or magnetic fields to move. There's this little device called the Mermaid, and it comes to us from uh, Japan's Rikoku University and Osaka Medical College. And it it's called the Mermaid, but it actually looks more like a, a tadpole. It's a, it's one of these little capsule endoscopic cameras, but it has this little tail mm-hmm. that it actually uses to propel itself throughout the digestive system. It can go in at either end, swim around, and uh, apparently make it through the entire body in just a few hours, as opposed to wow, well, what is supposed to like eight, several hours yeah, eight in the to ten hours in capsules with the other types of capsules, yeah. yeah. And a corned beef sandwich will typically run twenty four to seventy two hours. Right. To put that in perspective with normal traffic flow <laughs> yeah. through the human body. Yeah. So that's like the the bullet train. Yeah. Of technology for for uh, the the capsule. The doctors on the outside would be able to control it, mm-hmm. or able to control it with a joystick. And there, there's also um, uh, they would have a certain amount of autonomous navigation as well. It could sort of do its own thing in there. Okay, so it could possibly be programmed to go and do its own thing and yeah. and scoop up data. Um, so some people have said, and by people I mean there, there have been some scientists who say, and some researchers who who question the amount of data. That it's transmitting, and so their argument is, and there have not been a lot of studies on this, so we don't know de- definitively. Their question is, can you really have that much data, those that many images, and be able to look through it in a very thorough way and catch everything? Yeah, the, their their argument is that 860,000 images is maybe too much for anybody to process. Anyway, if you've ever been subjected to vacation photos. <laughs> And, uh, and, and, and no editing has been used. You probably know what they're talking about. Like, they're, they're, an individual can only look at so many photos and diagnose what's happening in them. Right. And as is often the, the case, our ability to collect data outpaces our ability to process it with the same technology. So when we can have an automated or remote control camera that can take all this stuff, we, we don't, uh, we don't have the, the processing technology to just load it into a computer and say, all right, computer, let me know which images are a little suspect so that right. an actual doctor can look at them. Which maybe that's the next step. Yeah, I, I imagine it, w- it will yeah. be, yeah. But right now, that is, that's the, the main point that's being made is just, just like you would, um, hear in an argument about security. Like if you have a million cameras all collecting data, you know, do you have the manpower to actually go through and detect a security threat? Right. But, you know, that's, that'll probably be easily solved. Because, I mean, imagine if you were, an, you're an editor at a small paper and you send a photographer out to cover an event and they bring back 860,000 images. That's not the answer you want. You want, show me the good ones, show me the ones I should be concerned about, right? Right, so, right, yeah. yeah. But, you know, 
that being said, this is a, a great technology, and um, you know it's it's been growing something like twelve point nine percent annually since yeah. two thousand and seven. And it's not just the digestive system. Guillermo Tierney at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston has been working on using this technology to examine uh, what's going on in arteries mm-hmm. uh, to fi- figure out ways to detect dangerous blood clots uh, and ultimately deal with them at this uh, micro scale. So. Not like um you know the fantastic voyage where where they had a little beam yeah they, they were like trying laser to gun, laser think, beam yeah. that they were trying to repair the clot but same idea right so that's the very exciting thing about this and we bring up Aubrey de Grey that the bearded um the bearded one as we call him the gerio uh, excuse me biogerontologist and he talks about this very sort of thing as being part and parcel of living to be a thousand years old. If you can have a sort of self-maintenance at this level, detecting illnesses, diseases before they get out of hand, then boom, you are setting yourself up for a, a much lengthier life. Yeah, yeah. And the technology is headed there. I mean, it's it, it's easy to imagine, just as we've seen the, the technology improve from a a a camera wand that we uh, we shove up the rectum. Mm-hmm. We've seen it advance from that to a capsule or even something the size of a grain of rice that we swallow. Uh, it's easy to imagine it coming to the point where you would swallow this little, little tiny device and it would swim around and it would not only diagnose but potentially um, address problems in the digestive system. Yeah, it's, it's completely amazing. And it's also hasn't it has it not been used for art? Didn't you send me a link oh, the other day? Oh, yeah, yeah. There's, there's an art project... Um, it's an art installation by media artist Stephanie Barden. It's called M2A. M2A refers to the endoscopic capsule, the ones that we've just been talking about. Uh, the name is short for mouth to anus. And the captured video is combined with data from a separate capsule that senses pH and pressure in the gastrointestinal tract. Uh-huh. So what she did is she fed one subject a meal of Top Raymond, Gatorade, and gummy bears. <laughs> Okay. Classic, classic uh, meal there. Good yeah, stuff yeah. to observe, uh, getting broken down. She fed another subject handmade noodles, uh-huh. okay, uh, pomegranate cherry juice gummy bears and hibiscus Gatorade, Gatorade in quotes. So the, the more whole foods aspect of the, um, the boxed foods. So she was trying to look at the difference in digestion. And it's really interesting. Um, I don't know how uh, scientifically tight some of her um, her observations are, but it is scored to a disco version of the flight of the bumblebee. Oh, very nice. I mean, that's that's panache right there. That is wow. So yeah, once again, we're happy to share strange, grotesque uh, gastrointestinal art with you guys. And we will be sure to include a link to that and other related topics on the blog post that accompanies this podcast. So don't worry about having to to actually go out and Google uh, that particular art project because there's no telling where you'll wind up. <laughs> That's right. You don't want to get into digestive uh, videos. You can take a nasty turn. All right, here comes Arnie. Oh, here's a robot with our listener mail. All right. What do you have for us today? All right, first of all, we heard from uh, one listener who uh, was concerned when she heard a listener mail that mentioned listening to our podcast while riding a bicycle. She was concerned that this was not safe, uh, that you know, you're going to be distracted if you have your headphones in uh, and you're listening to the podcast. We're not going to tell you guys how or when to listen to the podcast, but do just be careful uh, out there because, I mean, God forbid something should happen to you while you're riding on a bicycle listening to our podcast because I think if you die while listening to our episode on the Rat King, if that's the last thing uh, you hear, uh, you're probably not going to get into heaven. Sorry. 
Yeah, well, and pretty, a curse will be on our heads. Yeah, yeah. Got that part. So, yeah, just be careful out there, guys. Uh, and then we also heard from Amanda from uh, Australia. Amanda writes in and said, I've been listening to your podcast for a while now, but I usually download uh, them in batches, so I could be a little late with this one. Uh, and she's responding to our Cheating in the Name of episode, which actually isn't that old. And, and certainly never worry about responding to an old topic. We're happy to revisit them. Uh, she says, the podcast about cheating reminded me of something I did in chemistry exam during my first year at university. There were only uh, about five minutes left in the exam, and I had absolutely no clue how to even begin the last question. Honestly, I can't even remember what the question was about. So instead of attempting the, uh, to answer it, or cheating, I wrote, insert act of God here. Apparently, my tutor loved it because I got uh, part marks on this question for originality. While I know that isn't uh, wasn't cheating, I thought I would share my experience because it was an interesting way of getting extra marks for an exam. Thanks for the podcast, Amanda. All right, kids, you heard it there. Let, try that out and let us know. Try uh, that out and let us know how that shakes yeah. that out for everyone else. And then we also heard uh, from um, a listener by the name of Victoria, and Victoria was uh, responding to our episode about the Rat King, the Lair of the Rat King. She says, hello, I wanted to thank you for your podcast on the Rat King. I brought up, It brought up many memories for me, and I wanted to share them with you. And then she shares them in kind of a stream of consciousness way that I, I really dig. She says, uh, there was the underwater version of the Nutcracker Ballet, complete with dancing lobsters, about 1998 by the Milwaukee Ballet. My college professor's lecture on the plague and rats, uh, the whole time with a piece of tissue peeking out of his left nostril. The story of my mother actually finding a rat in the toilet when we lived in the Philippines. I was too young to remember. And seeing my first cat-sized rat upon moving to Baltimore. Thanks for such a great episode. I enjoy listening to you. I love that. I love like when one of our episodes just hits one of you guys like on all cylinders. Yeah. And uh, I feel like we're just sort of like tapping into your mind. Yeah. So... If you would like to tap into our mind, uh, you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. On Facebook, just search for Stuff to Blow Your Mind. You will find us. Uh, on Twitter, our handle is Blow the Mind. So, you know, shoot us shoot us some comments on there. We're happy to, uh, to listen to you. Yep, and you can always send us an email at blowthemind at discovery.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow.